gentlemen, welcome to episode 223 of the 1099. It has been a hell of a week in the world of online media, huh? Uh, but I'm glad you're here with us, and I'm also glad to have an old friend, someone I met near the tail end of my internship at Game Informer all the way back in ye old 2015, uh, sitting on a couch playing Star Wars Battlefront for work. I think I think Andrew Reiner like wanted me to like level up his character, and I was like, yeah, cool. <laughs> uh, better than transcribing but at that time i had no idea how cool uh, of a writer this guest is uh, i'm so honored to have him on the show mr jv gwaltney jv how you doing man i'm doing well i actually remember uh meeting you in person because we had known each other yeah, on Twitter and yeah. stuff. i feel like for a bit just because you know freelancers it's a it's a pretty small and big circle at the same time so when i met you in the office i was like oh yeah i know joe i've seen your byline that was that was a fairly long time ago that's nearly four years yeah now. time is has ravaged us and we're here. <laughs> i was gonna say i was like you know you've you've always you've been a uh, a tall man for most of your life but i still feel like both of us were had like fresher baby faces and there was definitely i remember you sitting on the couch and i think that they were just like like oh hey wait here with this intern while we like i don't know set up the next stage of your interview or like your visit to the office or whatever before we actually like you know sign paperwork and i do remember you just kind of being like i could tell you were astounded at the place too and you were uh in the thralls of like okay is this actually my life now kind of vibe is, is that am i on the mark there yeah yeah no it was very weird um it was very strange to be in the game informer offices for like at least for the first two years until it it took two years for it to become sort of like oh this is my day-to-day -day normalcy sort mm -hmm. of thing yeah but uh definitely on the definitely when i met you and i was still getting adjusted to oh yes this is my new life now is very strange there's there's a lot of star power in that place and just the walls mm -hmm. and like seeing all the magazine stuff and everything well, for anyone who you know follows games media, of course, uh, we're coming off the the tail end of a, a rather tragic occurrence. Um, Game Informer experienced a considerably like hefty number of layoffs. Um, not just JV, but also um, Elise Favis. Uh, uh, they had uh, uh, Jeff Marchiafava and. Um, God, I'm, I'm blanking. There were so many. I'm literally blanking on some names here. Yeah, yeah no, it was, it was a lot a... of people. They they basically let go of half, half, the, half of the editorial staff. Uh, it was Imran, Elise, Kyle, Jeff, um, Surreal, and yeah. me. And Matt, and Matt Burtz, uh, which is probably one of the more surprising ones because he was one of the, I think he was like, he was kind of like yeah. number three there at, at GI. And... Uh, so in in the month or so since, um, of course, everyone, uh, m most everyone at GI has thankfully managed to find a, a new line of work. Uh, thankfully, everyone's kind of still working in games media in some sense or, or the game industry. Uh, ben Hansen and Kyle and Surreal and uh, Fava started MinMax, and we're hoping to have them on later. Uh, Imran is doing good work with Kind of Funny and uh, as IGN's uh, SEO editor. And you, yourself, you got a job with Terra Bruno PR, um, which yeah. I, I, I'm somewhat familiar with them. I, I have a good friend, Alex Shea, who works for them. And uh, Oh, yeah, Alex. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's that's about the re- reaction everyone has when when we talk about Alex. Oh yeah, Alex, uh, the man who rocks some good Tims. I love you, Alex. But uh, you worked you worked at GI for like you said about three or four years, and it, mm-hmm. I think even though like games media as is no stranger to closures and uh, layoffs and whatnot. GI was one of those more rock steady outlets it felt like and yet here we are uh one of my favorite jokes ever is Jeff Gersman calling Andy McNamara the load-bearing wall of games journalism and and here we are we're we're kind of beginning to lose some of that uh a little bit some of the luster of the staff and just not to ruminate too much on it because I do want to talk about the here and now quite a bit uh, but what were what were your immediate thoughts as the layoffs began to hit you and your friends well it was probably an odd case for me um compared to some of the other folks because I was in Germany covering Gamescom mm-hmm. at the time uh me Jeff Cork and Brian Shea were the Gamescom team and so we just wrapped up the day because of the time difference and Cork and I went back to our hotel room. And we started writing up, you know, the demos we had seen. Uh, like I had seen uh, Medieval Remastered and Need for Speed that day. Uh, so I started writing those up. And then the news started hitting. Uh, found out first that Burt's, Kyle, and Serial were let go. And when I found that, that out, it was one of those things where, you know, it... I wasn't really, I wasn't even thinking about, okay, if I'm waiting for my turn Mm -hmm. to get sort of let go, it was, do I even want to work at this place anymore? Because like Burt's was basically like, I mean, he was the guy who got me out of the South. Like he like advocated for me to get hired and stuff. And he was basically like a sort of big brother figure at the office. And it just sort of really devastated me. Um, So when my when our publisher called me and let me know that I had been laid off too, I was just kind of like, it was relieving almost in a way. It's like, okay, well this Mm -hmm. sucks, but the decision um, has been made for you now. Yeah. The decision had been made for me because if I had gone home, I would have, I would have probably waited, you know, a couple of weeks to get, you know, paid um, and then just quit uh, sort of like Hanson did. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't know. It's it. it I don't want to say it, it sucked. Like getting laid off sucked, and it and it sucked mostly because I don't get to work with all these fantastic people anymore. There was a fantastic talent pool at Game Informer, uh, but also like I had been I had been doing games journalism for like a decade, you know, nearly a decade when I got left off from like you know just starting out as like blogging stuff and like running sites and doing freelancing and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, when that happened, uh, it wasn't the end of the world. And also like the year before I had gone sober and I had like, just had a bunch of stuff happened Mm -hmm. and gone into therapy and stuff. So like 2017 was the worst year of my life. It's like a, a nine or 10 on the trauma scale. Uh, so, you know, the layoffs were more probably like a five or six. It was one of those things like, okay, you've gotten through this. It's fine everyone will be fine. Everyone's talented. And like, that's pretty much played out. Like everyone's finding jobs or they're still finding gigs in the games industry. So, you know, it, it sucked, but it wasn't the end of the world for me, I guess. It's, it was my immediate reaction. Tell you what, I, I can kind of hear myself coming out of a mic again. Are you, uh, are you okay over there? Hmm. 
yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I think I think I just put the thing no worries, no worries. I I had a, I had a horror story of like someone trying to like demanding I let them use their phone from like a uh, uh, conference room, and it was just the worst audio ever. I'm like, you've listened to a podcast, dude. Like, oh my god, stop. That was a uh, yeah. No, that don't was... do that. That's a that's a full yeah. error. <laughs> uh, let me start from. Um... And you know, uh, only if you're comfortable, I do want to talk about. Like I mentioned in the start of the show, uh, well, you know, before I get to that too, it's it, it was really amazing to see what people like yourself and Elise did and Serial uh, over at Game Informer because I feel like, especially even when I was there back in 2015, um, there was it. It still felt pretty straightforward. It felt like you know, hey, we're gonna do the previews, the reviews, and the the news hits that'll click uh and game informer was i think rightfully regarded as a pretty generalist outlet but still did good work of course but it was you guys in this like burgeoning generation of writers uh you know you started your column virtual life um elise did great feature work serial did great feature work there was the beginning of like hey we're beginning to explore some different boundaries at least as this magazine and show that you know it's not all about the the nuts and bolts writing that uh, dictated games media for you know a decade prior uh so i suppose in that sense like you should definitely be proud of that um only if you're comfortable, though, What, it, like I mentioned in the earlier part of the show, it's been a hell of a week for online media. Um, Deadspin just lost, I think, their managing editor. Um, he, he got fired for uh, telling the C-suite that he won't just stick to sports, which is a, a huge you know, uh, point of contention for us in the media, being told to stick to X topic, whatever. Uh, but then, of course, Kotaku, uh, Jason Schreier tweeted out that, like, they're having a, a pretty tense standoff with some of their bosses um, over, like, autoplay ads, of all things. And uh, that post got taken down by some of those uh, more executive level people. And so now it's this tense standoff. And uh, I don't th I don't think Game Informer is exactly the same situation, um, although there there is a lot of, you know corporate number crunching that probably impacted like how many people are we going to lay off like you know how disposable are these people at game informer but what's what do you what do you wish people realized more about the power balance between an editorial team like you elise surreal etc and uh the powers that be who you know maybe don't even like share the same office or floor oh it's all the power balance is like I'd say almost completely in corporate's hands. Like that's the scary thing is corporate controlled media is just, it's, it feels like it's a failed enterprise mm -hmm. to a degree, you know, like I honestly think the end game for a lot of these sort of corporate owned media outlets for, you know, these uh, is that the executives at the top would like very much to turn these outlets into content farms uh, for easy revenue that causes no drama, mm -hmm. you know? So like top 10 list uh, is politically or apolitical uh, pieces as possible, you know, that sort of thing, like easy to digest reviews, things that don't, you know, not quality journalism. I think there's a schism between what editorial wants uh, and what corporate wants. 
and I think that is a tale as old as time, and that Corford is sort of exerting or exerting their forces more and more uh, now than ever before. Even though viewers and readers say, "No, we want mm-hmm. this," like you know, you hear it, you hear it all over the place. You hear it on social media. You hear it, you know, in the comment sections of YouTube videos on like the outlets that are posting this content is like hey we like this and whenever there is a sort of huge change up there is an outcry like we saw that yesterday with deadspin because i think barry was more than the managing editor right he was the the de facto de facto eic, EIC. yeah because the other one had written uh a, a pretty lengthy yeah, megan, uh, piece against the her bosses yeah <laughs> yeah megan's uh the adults in the room piece yeah. i think you know, if you ever want to know what's going on with corporate-owned media and why it's such a perilous time for journalism, for honest, great journalism, just read that piece. Yeah. It tells you everything you need to know. The people in charge are basically wannabe grifters. They, uh, you know, they think they know everything about the product that they're funding because they read some articles about esports and. You know, they've glanced at some trends. They don't know really anything. They don't have any faith in the people that they've employed, you know, despite these people working at these outlets for, what, 10, 15, so on and so forth years, like the people at the top. It's just mind-blowing. Like They know nothing about the product that they're trying to sell, mm-hmm. basically. It, it really does feel like they're the music man coming into town on the, le- on the latest train, and trying to hawk a couple of trombones, which they do not know how to play, before just to make enough money to get to the next town, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, like, it's just, they, they have no idea what they're doing. And, you know, I... I, I game, GameSpot, the owner of Game Informer, uh, I think the previous... GameStop. GameStop, sorry, Dominic. This, no, see, this, it, is, it, it this is the problem we're going to run to. Outer Wilds, Outer Worlds uh, will definitely come up today. Can't yeah. wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I definitely almost tweeted Outer Wilds when initially promoting the show on Twitter. But uh, GameStop, you know, is is itself in a pretty perilous position. Uh, and I know that, like, Barnes & Noble used to own Game Informer before they, I guess, sold it off to GameStop. And... Uh, it, it, it one one wonders yes when you have a glut of uh physical stores to manage um some of which are trying to like rebuild themselves as like community hangouts and like i i wonder how that's going to work i think that's more of a investor play but uh one has to wonder what the kind of decisions are to keep x number of stores open but to basically cripple uh half of a really important publication that honestly does a lot of the the PR and the marketing for you you know uh, game informer is a reputable outlet but it can't it, it can't be denied that there's probably a good benefit to having game informer in the in the halls of GameStop uh, so I anytime I go in there I'm reminded of like yeah I need to re-up my subscription or I need to uh, uh, figure out a way to support <laughs> this company so I so I don't like lose like the last bastion of of physical media out here. But I don't know. Uh, what do, what do you think of GameStop um, now that I guess now that you're removed from Game Informer, maybe you can be a little more open up with it. But yeah, what do you think of GameStop and their kind of uh, own perils that they have to consider? Well, I can't talk too much about it. 
because uh, of agreements sure. and so on and so forth. Um, but it'll be interesting. Let's say yeah. that. It'll be very interesting to see how their very ambitious uphill battle plan plays mm-hmm. out. I personally cannot wait. <laughs> I'll leave it I'll tell at you that. What, what does we talk about, you know, the model of, of millionaire controlled journalism, um, you know, like Washington Post, which I guess uh, Elise might get some experience with this now working at Washington Post, which is owned by Amazon's Jeff Bezos. Uh, what does what does a more sustainable, less dependent on millionaires media model look like? You know, what, what should we be aiming for? I mean, I think it's I think it's something that people have already been doing with like easy allies and, you know, min max. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's not it's scary because it depends on subscribers, right? Like you're at the whim of uh, subscribers but at the same time you know your content like that feels like the ultimate you know uh proving grounds mm-hmm. right like okay are is the content we're making is it going to pull in enough people to support us um and that's a scary thing but also there's a bigger earnestness about it you know um because at the same time i don't think corporate media i don't think corporation the corporations that back corporate media can be trusted You know, um, and that might be some of my own biases and experiences speaking out. Uh, But I think this past week has showed us that, right? Like you just can't, you know, you can't trust it, not because of ethical issues or or whatever. It's because, oh, the whole thing might fall apart because some executive might not like what you're printing one day. Um, Or they want to pivot to some other failure, uh, failure platform out of desperation, right? Um, I think that's the the biggest problem is you have the owners of corporate media don't want to actually invest. They don't want to make the necessary investments. Like, I think that's honestly what happened with Compete over at uh, Kotaku. You know, remember their esports vertical for that lasted like Mm -hmm. a year. It was great. It was the best writing that you could get in esports because it communicated the most interesting trends and events that were happening in esports in a very sort of generalist way and a way that balanced being general to a wider audience and in depth and it was fantastic but i imagine it didn't pull the numbers uh needed but at the same time you can't really you can't really get you know the number of readers and viewers you want without investing in that mm-hmm. community right for several years and i i think you get a lot of uh the people backing these initiatives they they aren't willing to make that investment they think they are but they're not actually as patient as they think they are and i think that scares me more than anything else uh that that's what makes me wary of uh you know any corporation backing media so i think the honest i don't i don't know if there's a meeting middle point like a meeting middle point but i do think that like the future of media is sort of you know being laid out right now by what you know, folks are doing with Patreon, what they're doing with community funded channels, because you need to turn to the community if you want these sort of things to exist. And if you're someone who's loved this content, you know, you've loved what these people have created over the years, whatever it is, like the onus is on you to support it. Like you can't just depend on a game GameStop or CBS or, or whatever to support, you know, these written articles, this video content. Mm-hmm. At some point, you're going to have to it's going to, the bill's going to come to you 
and you're going to have to decide whether or not you want to pay it and support it. I think that's ultimately what it's going to come down to is putting the fate of the, the sort of content creators in the hands of the people who consume the content, which is scary because for us, I feel like corporations who have worked with like, like corporate media, whether it's freelancers or as like staff, you know, that the, the publication name and the corporation behind it has always been sort of the buffer, right? Like when I wrote for Playboy, I could write what I wanted and it would be fine because Playboy was the buffer. But, you know, as we progress further and further, that's going to be less of the case, I think. It's going to be more in the hands of the actual people who consume your stuff. You know, you raise a, a very interesting point about the, the bill coming to the people who want to consume uh, games and media. Uh, someone floated a tweet around just yesterday that was uh, pretty funny of like, you know, uh, HBO Max, Netflix, uh, Disney Plus, et cetera, et cetera, and all the various streaming platforms. Uh, their base level subscription cost and then what it would cost to have all of that once a month. And I think it was something like $100 a month uh, uh, for at least like the major streaming platforms. And <clears throat> you, you think about like the Patreon model, of course. And uh, thankfully, a lot of outlets like, you know, Kind of Funny and I think MinMax has like a, a one or maybe five dollar tier. They have the, they have those low tiers uh, where it's just real entry level like, hey, I don't have a lot, but I want to support this and maybe get it like a day early, you know, just as a as a uh, gesture of goodwill. Um, and I, I do wonder if if media changes enough in that sense, or at least for games media, if maybe we might hit a similar point where we start to think like, OK, I've got a Giant Bomb subscription. I've got a MinMax hmm. subscription. I've got a kind of funny subscription, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, like maybe Launcher launches some sort of premium thing. Uh, you know, I wonder if there will become if there will come some sort of exhaustion point. And I hope that doesn't come. But I do wonder if uh, that will be sustainable in the long run as well. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's inevitable. I think that's just the nature of competition pretty much is like, hey, you know, subscriber has X amount of dollars. They want to fund this, this and this. Like at a certain point, it's going to become, you know, uh, a priority call for that person. But at the same time, like, you know, if the outlet is doing its job well, I'd like to believe that they'll pick up other subscribers, right? Like they might lose one subscriber in mm -hmm. game three. You know, there's going to be ebb and flow when it comes to sort of revenue streams for these smaller outlets, for these community-funded ventures. And I I think that's just the case for everything within, you know, capitalism. So, you know. <laughs> good old. It, it, it is what it is. Capitalism. This is where we are. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's pretty much, yeah, I think that's, that pretty much sums up my thoughts on it in terms of, you know, um, competing you know and, and and the subscription exhaustion because i am definitely feeling that like earlier today at one point uh i was thinking of uh, apple arcade mm -hmm. you know and i'm basically i i bought another month out of guilt uh just because which is stupid because it's apple right like they'll be fine. you know it, they'll be fine without my five dollars but at the same time like i got a lot of great games off of that treat uh, off of that trial period that i got to play through like five of the best games i played mm -hmm. all year um so there's definitely like a principal thing there of like well I'll, I'll give them some money for like two or three more months you know um and i feel like subscribers in general when they're connected to what you know what uh what content is being uh 
created, you know, they're more likely to stay on board. Like I've jumped off of Netflix and whatever else so many times because there's an impersonal uh, component to it, right? Like I don't really, oh, here's some shows that I want to watch. Oh, those shows aren't there on there anymore. I've gone through all of them. That's fine. I don't need this anymore. Whereas you get something like Min Max or you get something like Giant Bomb, that's much harder to turn off. I feel like because it's so personality driven, you know, it, it'd be really hard for me to, cause I subscribe to MinMax. Obviously I'm a supporter for me to like ever justify not supporting mm-hmm. them, you know, cause it's my friends and I'm, you know, I work with several of those people I'm invested that, or even, you know, giant bomb or, you know, content creators that I've listened to or, or watched or read over the years. It's much harder for me because there's an, a personal investment in there, right? I am invested in this person as opposed to being invested in like a streaming service or just a content mill. It's it's about the people. Also definitely, yeah, harder harder to turn off a subscription switch when you know that like, hey, there's a person behind that. There's a person behind this thing that I enjoy. It's not just like their personality, but it's also like they're probably living in an apartment just like me kind of, you know, thing. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's also interesting maybe a little bit of a sidetrack real quick, but I think you'd find this interesting too, uh, is it's very fascinating to have been part of, I think games media might be one of the most interesting media in the world because while digital media is undergoing, you know, a need for, Oh, there, we need to make huge changes here. This is not sustainable. We are also in an industry that is not sustainable the way Mm -hmm. it is. So you have, media and unsustainable media covering an unsustainable industry and it's something i think about every day of like oh we have worker you know we have we have worker strikes and stuff on both sides of the fence like every day it feels like yeah i mean it it has often felt like perhaps games media understands a lot of the grind of the games industry just a little bit better than perhaps the average like beltway journalist might uh understand you know uh, uh blue collar uh, workers or or something like that um yeah i mean I, I i as a freelancer i mean i freelance primarily for like ign pc gamer a little bit of daily dot and you know i run this show i i feel the same grind and worn down feeling uh, that I imagine a lot of uh, young to middle-aged game developers probably feel too. I don't, I don't c- proclaim to like know what it must feel like to make a game and like to go through that process, but like the general feeling of understanding the grind that people have to go through for this art, for what is art on both sides, media and industry. Uh, I, I feel like I do get that. Yeah. Yeah, because we live in a. We operate in an industry where the nine to five. Is yeah, <laughs> that's that's not a I thing. I stayed up until uh, um, 11, eleven working uh, last night. My my partner will hate me for that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, like nine to five did not exist for me at Game Informer. That was a personal choice, you know. But also that was something that came from my freelancing days. Um, nine to five has never existed for me as long as I've been, you know, in the games industry, uh, on both sides of the fence. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's very it is very interesting to to cover an industry that is grappling with that when you're also dealing with those things. And, you know, that that is a good enough transition into you mentioned you mentioned <laughs> earlier, like support systems and uh, uh, making sure that like uh, 
the bosses behind a outlet like have the patience to build something up um before we dive into pr stuff a little bit of the like the transitionary period uh between game informer and the terra bruno pr job um did you have to do any freelancing in the interim like any any monkey work i mean i didn't have to because of like severance stuff but i did it just as a mental health thing um like a garrett over Mm -hmm. pace reached out to me he was like hey this sucks you know they screwed you over blah 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 if you want to write for me you just again just let me know i totally understand if you don't though uh, and I wrote to him and I was like, Hey dude, yeah, I'll definitely, I'd love to write some more for pace. Cause I got my mm-hmm. start. I feel like at pace, like pace is responsible for so many great writers. I feel like, and, and, you know, freelancers and full-time staff folks got their start at pace. Um, so it was a joy to work with them again, but you know, I didn't need to financially. It was, it was more of a, I want to feel like I still have power here. Um, and I talked with it about Serial, with Serial and Kyle, too, have been freelancing with Fanbyte um, and some other places. Serial's gotten, like, two or three game spot yeah. reviews, so good on him. Uh, Kyle's been over at IGN. Burtz has gotten some sports reviews over at IGN. And it's more, it comes from a place of wanting to feel like, okay, we can still do this work, and it still has value. Um, this sort of work that we did for years and years and years. So it's more, I felt like mental stuff or mental uh, reassurance and emotional reassurance rather than like financial stuff for me at least. The the feeling of like, hey, we got you. Like we we can't possibly give you enough to account for a full job, but like the it, it's no different than someone a friend saying like, hey man, can I can I buy lunch for you? I know you're not going through a, a great time right now, right? Yeah, no, the community outpouring was fantastic because I was off Twitter yeah. when it happened. Uh, I came back. Obviously, I came back and made a new a new Twitter um, later to like try and land a job, which was great because like the day after uh, I did that, I got the email that would eventually get me this job. So uh, my tip that I gave freelancers years and years ago about hey. LinkedIn or Twitter is much more useful than LinkedIn for getting jobs. That's still true, guys. Yeah. Don't use, use Twitter, not LinkedIn. Um, but yeah, it's it, it. The community outpouring was amazing. I still get emails all the time about like, "Hey, man, I read your virtual life column on, you know, sobriety or religion or whatever." And like, it, it feels weird because when you're there and you're writing the thing, I'm sure you've had this too. When you're doing the work and the work goes up, you don't really feel, you don't know how many people are invested Mm -hmm. in what you've created, right? Like you just put it up and you're like, oh, okay, here's a paycheck or I've done my job or I got something out of it personally. But you're kind of, it feels like you're detached in some ways, at least from the work you create until someone points it out to you. And so having that wave of just people, because for years and years and years, I just sort of existed in the bubble of like, well, I'm writing this and it's mostly for myself, but hey, if someone else gets something out of it, great. And just to have that tide wash over me after this thing happened was incredible. And that's the that's true for a lot of folks, too. Um, you know, we had a bunch of emails go out to a lot of, you know, like Kyle got a lot of emails about his video work and so on and so forth. 
So that's great. Just having that reassurance and community support and stuff is definitely uh, helpful. What did um? It's funny you mentioned you had severance. I've I've been freelancing for so long, and I I very recently had my twenty seventh birthday, so I'm officially like late twenties now. Uh, I've I'd forgotten like that severance could be a thing, uh, and I imagine it's pretty different in. Uh, Minnesota, where, you know, the cost of living probably still, uh, especially in Minneapolis, probably still pretty up there, but certainly not as bad as like West Coast, uh, at least to the extent that you can talk about it. I, I think a lot of people would be interested to learn what does what kind of safety net financially does a full time games media person uh, get when such a tragedy occurs? Not a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, um, that's about all I can say about it. Like, it's just uh, it was not a lot. Uh, yeah, I, I think I, I can just leave it at that. Uh, well, it it was not as much as I would have liked, but at the same time, you know, it came at a time when my partner and I are moving in mm -hmm. together and so on and so forth. So um, a lot of expenses with know, that. It is yeah. what it is. Yeah. So basically, the 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 key takeaway from what I'm saying here is safe. Yeah you know, have a savings going, you know, I had a little bit of one when everything happened, which I'm thankful for. Um, but, you know, I think this applies to any job anywhere in any industry, unless you're like some rich billionaire mm -hmm. or something, or, you know, a pretty well off executive don't count on severance, you know, don't, don't depend on severance, have savings going. And, you know, uh, good enough transition into what does, what does the PR system, uh, we talk about the support, uh, I think the best outlets, like you say, are interested in building up their uh, workers and saying, hey, even if you make a mistake or even if you need a, a little time in the oven, um, we're going to give you that time so that like a little later on, we'll have something really, really beautiful and, and our name will be synonymous with great work. Uh, what does that look like on the PR side? Does does an outlet like Tara Bruno um, or some other PR outlet, do they seem to have a similar sense of like, we're we're gonna work with you. Uh, you you don't work with you don't work for us, but we're, we're all working together and we want to build you up as a PR professional. Do you get the sense of that uh, when you started to come into the job? Yeah, I mean, I can only speak for for Tara and mm -hmm. her crew. Um, and our clients too, uh, like I primarily work with private division, um, but all of those folks, private division and Tara and uh, all the folks who work under her who are responsible for training me. So like Lizzie Killian, um, you know, Zalai Serrano, uh, Tom Green, you know, they're, they've been great, kind, patient people who have put up with some of my more like media uh, you know, backwash sort of things of like, well, why are we doing this or this or this way? You know, those sorts of mm -hmm. questions. Um, they've been very patient and, you know, it's, it's been an education for like the first, I think it's a month and a half now that I've been working with the company came in right <laughs> before outer Worlds stuff started going out. So that was wild. Um, but yeah, it's been great. They, it is a team of people who are invested and me becoming the best possible version of who I can be in the context of this job so I can help them later on and, you know, uh, help them do their job better as well. And I've really appreciated that. I've never felt on the outside or anything um, from all sides. It's It's been a great experience so far. 
uh, it's it's definitely been eye-opening too I feel like like a lot of things on the journalism side where I was just like well a lot of minor frustrations about like why don't I have code yet or you know review code yet or blah 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 those things have been I I feel very sheepish <laughs> about uh, those moments when I was a journalist and I was getting kind of haughty or whatever uh, about that. You know, <laughs> I I understand that very much. I um I I got you know like Call of Duty review codes and uh you get to you get to meet people at events like that and once you once you get to know that like those people are probably just as as struggling as much as you you're kind of like hey man review code whenever no rush yeah <laughs> I uh, yeah um, go ahead sorry no go, sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to say, it's it was really, even before I took the job with Terra, uh, when I got laid off at Gamescom, you know, I saw some journalists, but like, Gamescom is pretty much a European mm-hmm. thing. It's very rare that US outlets send more than like one or two people if they send anyone at all. Uh, I had tons of PR people coming up to me and just being the nicest people in the world because I was still going to my appointments even though the news was out that I had been laid off, it was being covered by like GameSpot and IGN. So I'd show up and they'd be like, Oh, we didn't, we didn't expect you to show. Like I showed up to Brenda Romero's empire of sin and she was the nicest person there and triple point PR, which represented them. They were super nice. They were like, we honestly didn't expect you to come. You know, you're more than welcome to. And I was like, guys, that's fine. I might not be able to give you coverage, but I'm still working the show until we figure out what's going yeah, on yeah. um but like the key po- takeaway there is like pr people uh are very nice especially like when something happens on either their side of the fence or you know on the journalism side of things like it was just incredibly they were incredibly kind um even before you know i started doing pr stuff that was just it was great they were so nice like blaine over at microsoft uh, he stopped me. He was like, dude, if there's anything I can do, you just let me know, blah, 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 blah. And I just, I basically just want to take a second and like say, you know, public relations mm-hmm. folks are just great uh, in that way of like, okay, what can we do? How can we help you? So on and so forth. Yeah, no, they, the, it, it, perhaps they get a, a bad rep for being PR, uh, but they're, you can only work in this industry if you really love it, I think. Um, at least at that level, that level of representing a game or or researching a game and and trying to give it legs to stand on when it's finally out there in the public. Uh, that that for all intents and purposes is having a baby and putting it out into the world. Uh, and it, Tara Bruno and her outfit seem like a really good kind of crew. Uh, I, I have a friend uh, I mentioned earlier, Alex Shea, uh, young guy from actually I, I met him on the train coming back from a pokemon concert in the chicago area and like super random and That's... and here's here's <laughs> this uh here's this this kid uh like riding the train with his mom uh and i'm just like yeah uh, this is just another i thought at first yeah this is just another like you know game fan i'll meet you know it's nice to chat and everything but i probably won't ever like see or hear from him again immediately on twitter like this kid has hustle uh and he is like you know saying hey thanks man for talking to me uh and lo and behold two or three years later he is working freelance for Terra pr uh and he he is going to events and he's just putting in that hustle and to think a kid from kankakee county uh 
could could just exhibit that level of passion for the job and have it recognized in a relatively timely manner um, and be rewarded for all that hard work, uh, I think speaks really highly of uh, Terra Bruno PR. Yeah, no, they're all great people that I work with. Um, it's weird because I, I've only met Tara in person and that's not has that doesn't have anything to do with this job. That was just she was the she was handling uh, Life is Strange, not to Captain Spirit. Yeah. You remember the, the one off. Uh, yeah. 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 So I went to E3 and I met her then because she was the, you know, the PR person handling that. And, you know, we had a nice little chat and stuff, but I haven't met any of the uh, the actual folks that I've worked with in person before. I'm, I'm going to do that at some point this month, but uh, I'm definitely excited to meet them. Alex, too, because like, like you said, he's got a lot of hustle. Like he definitely, Kit's got hustle. And I, I as someone who has hustled yeah. <laughs> before, I appreciate that. You know, it's definitely sort of a thing that you gravitate towards if you've had to do that thing, um, you know. What, um, when when you look at, uh, Outer, Outer Worlds is out now and reviews have been out for a little while. Uh, it is? <laughs> yeah, Shit. right. Uh, I, I've, I've beaten the first planet um and i'm just like struggling to like find time to keep playing because it, it's, it's a big rpg but anyway uh talking about like at a games media outlet of course you're focused on your singular view of a game you're writing your review and you're trying to make it uh accessible enough to an audience that like even if they don't like play rpgs maybe they'll understand like why you know this particular game is is cool or interesting um, but when you go to PR, I imagine your eyes have to be much wider and you have to look at a much bigger picture as far as critical reception uh, in games media. You know, we, we talk all the time about don't look at other people's reviews if they get one published before you get yours out there, because one, just try to avoid plagiarism like a plague. Uh, and two, mm -hmm. don't like let, don't let their thoughts influence you be willing to be the, the, like the lone wolf who really loves or really hates a game you know what 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 is it what yeah. does it feel like when your scope has been broadened uh when you're trying to look at a uh, critical reception of a big game like that well i'm probably not in the best position to answer this one just because like it's my first game that i've done pr mm -hmm. for that i've helped do pr for and the problem here it's only a problem within the context of this question is uh I really love this game. <laughs> like, you know, it like everything I say about it, it's you know, it's it's very like it's my game of the year. It, it's wild that I got to do like my first PR thing is basically like, oh yeah, I'm gonna help launch this game that's my game of the year already, just because it's Mass Effect two and Fallout, mm -hmm. you know, all the great stuff together in a blender and I love it. Um so I don't I don't actually you know, I, I I think I need more experience before I can answer that question, mm -hmm. honestly. You know, it's just, I, I don't have that much experience yet. It's a very sort of, uh, there's a learning curve. So I guess, I guess uh, uh, what I'm saying here, Joe, is that this is my pitch for you to invite me on three years exactly. from now when I'm yeah. a battle-hardened PR person, and then I'll tell you the lay of the land. But I don't have it right now. <laughs> basically i don't think i can answer your question in a way that's interesting hopefully i'll be at a a bigger outlet like ign by that time but then hopefully i'll also have like 
usurped Ryan McCaffrey's throne and I'll be able to like just take uh, IG and uh, take, take IG and Tesla. Yeah, podcast. take his. Well, take his. No, but <laughs> but uh, I'll take. That is the wildest thing about him to me. Is like, oh, he has a Tesla podcast. Sure, why not? Why not? And also, you know, he definitely had uh, uh, Mr. Tesla himself there on the show for his two hundredth episode. Like, yeah, that's, that's holy shit. But <laughs> no, I'll steal. I'll steal IGN yeah. unfiltered from him and get to talk to like Eve Gamo about growing up on a farm, uh, <laughs> and then, and then I'll talk uh-huh. to you about uh, growing up in the uh, the content farms of PR. But <laughs> no, so I guess what was. I think this is something that you can answer even only a month and a half in. Uh, what was what has been like your biggest misconception? Like I, I I think even seasoned games media people can have some misconceptions about just how PR works or like how the the behind the scenes things work. Uh, what what really surprised you? Um, learning how much goes into getting an answer about mm-hmm. something because you know when you're on the journalist side and you send out a question to like a developer or a publisher and it's like, well, I need an immediate risk. You know, you're sitting there like, I want an immediate response because you got a story and you want to update it with clarification or whatever. And uh, there'd be a lot of times at GI that me and some other, you know, editors would end up waiting a fair amount of time, like a day or something. Um, but you don't really, you don't realize how many, how many, how many, um, and it's not red tape, but just how many people that question has to go through to get an accurate answer about, oh, is this tech performing mm-hmm. well? You know, can we answer the, even if it's something simple, like, you know, just a, a tech question, like, well, we have to talk to tech and legal and so on and so forth. So, you know, stuff like that. It's just like how many people you have to talk to to get an answer, how many people a single question has to go through to get the right answer, uh, I guess. And it's a lot of time. It's a fair amount of time. So that's the thing I'd probably be the most sheepish about is just like when I was a journalist sitting there thinking, oh, this lazy PR person isn't getting back to me. And that's like, no, that's not the case. We're actually like trying to get you the most detailed answer imaginable, JV. You Um, ass. So, yeah, exactly. So that's that's probably the biggest misconception that I have had fixed immediately it's just like, oh no, there's a lot of work and care going into getting your 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 question answered. You know, it it does feel like uh, when you consider the kind of news reporting that like different kinds of sites will do a, a Kotaku with like a deep dive or like a IGN with a quick hit, I I can begin to understand like yeah how how tough that must be for some outlets and for some PR outfits because yeah there are a lot of times where hey I just need like this one thing clarified so my readers don't yell at me that like no actually that that thing in game is only five dollars instead of six or something like that uh there are so many times where i do shoot off a quick email just thinking like please just just give me an answer i don't care if it's super canned or anything like that but you begin to think about like if that story for some reason picks up traction and it didn't go through yeah the the numerous channels PR, developer, legal, uh, there are plenty of instances where that could quickly get out of hand, especially if it is something bigger. Like um, I, I do admire uh, Jason Schreier has said in the past before that he believes in 
allowing developers or PR to like have some time to respond before he runs something. Um, I, I can't say for certain how well that holds up in his reporting because uh, I, I don't get to, you know, read his emails. But uh, I, I do appreciate the fact that there are journalists out there willing to yeah give PR some time to uh, collect their thoughts before they answer something that could you know, impact the bottom line. Yeah. I uh, no, it is appreciated. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I this this being yeah your your game of the year. Um, I, I've I've really enjoyed. It. I think Outer Wilds actually is still my game of the year. Uh, so I'm sure yeah. that'll confuse some people on top ten lists. But uh, the hall. There better be so many joke lists oh, about no, that. Right? It's yeah. uh, it'll be like Outer Worlds ten through two, and then Outer Wilds at the top, and be like, wait were we writing about outer worlds this entire time? Whoops. Uh, <laughs> so the holiday season too, is a really gotta be a really interesting time for PR. Um, as media, of course, we're focused on everything. Uh, Death Stranding comes out in like eight days or something. Uh, embargo drops, not that not long before. And outer worlds is out. Call of Duty's out. Uh, review events are happening hither and thither. Star Wars is coming out very soon. But as a PR outfit, you get to really focus on uh, one game um, and making sure it like has a, a good tail end, you know, post release that it that it keeps going as far as coverage and positive coverage. Uh, what has that change been like? Being able to focus on, I suppose, one thing during a really really busy se season. It's actually been super refreshing. Um, again, it heavily helps that I really love this game, you know? So it's like every article that comes out, I'm reading, you know, I'm, I'm eager to devour more content about it, not just because it's my job, but also like, oh my God, I'm super into this. I want to know what this art, this writer who I respect to think about that, like reading Gita Jackson's review of the game was just mm -hmm. a delight seeing like, because she really focused on like sort of the, the themes about labor and having you know, to really come head to head with what you think your ideology is uh, and then, but put it into practice, you know, and deal with the realities of your ideology and how it can be cruel, even when you think it's, you know, you're doing the best thing for everyone. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's been a, it feels like I've been very focused on something that I love, you know, and again, I loved my, I loved working in media or I loved most of working in media and I loved my, my job at Game Informer, but there were definitely times at Game Informer where we'd be so spread out just individually, all of us like trying to do so many things at once for like a bunch of games that it would make this season exhausting. Mm -hmm. But the fact that I just get to focus on, you know, Outer Worlds and some other stuff uh, and not really worry, like I got to play Call of Duty and it was it was weird not having, not feeling obligated to have thoughts about it, you know, or to like write things about it, even though I obviously have thoughts about that campaign um but you know just like playing all the fall release games without having to do work for them is honestly gratifying and relieving like i can't wait to play death stranding and not feel obligated to write a virtual life about it even though i miss the virtual life there are things uh, i do miss but it, it it's less of an obligation you know if that makes sense yeah. like i would be excited to write a virtual life about after party uh but not necessarily so much about death stranding but if i still had the job at gi i'd probably have to just out mm -hmm. of obligation of like well this is a game dealing with these themes i should write about them right i should i should you know we have this space we should be using it so not to have to like 
spend so many plates at once and really focus my work on one game and get to enjoy all the other games pretty ignorantly. You know, ignorance is bliss in a lot of ways, but to like come to, you know, Call of Duty or Jedi or, or Death Stranding without having been forced as a part of my job to devour constant content about it is pretty great. Just being able to play a game at the pace that you want, as opposed to, yeah, there's there's always such a, a crunch in games media to say like, we need the review up pretty dang fast. Uh, so you're going to play, you're going to play Death Stranding, a game that takes God knows how long because it's a Kojima game. Uh, you're going to play that in like three days, and you're going to feel really burnt out by the end. You're probably not going to be on your absolute A game in terms of rest and like consideration of its themes by the time you're actually writing a review. But uh, this t this time, it, it has been, as, as someone who now I'm getting a lot of my freelance money by doing non-review-y things, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the homepage, I'm the weekend homepage guy at IGN, I'm a Fortnite SEO guy at PC Gamer, and like I'm doing news and all this stuff, but I am making enough to where I don't feel like I have to pitch reviews a lot, so it's been super gratifying, yeah, to play Outer Worlds and only like have completed, I'm on the the, the second major area, uh, which is just like, wow, I can't believe, I can't believe I like, I'm debating if I should play it tonight when I get home from work kind of thing. That That does feel like a nice sense of freedom, yeah. Yeah, like last night I started Disco Elysium. Oh, I really want um, to play that one. And that game, that game's wild. And I just to just to be able to play it, and not worry about time, you know, because a game informer, and I'm sure a lot of, you know, freelancers and full time folks feel this in media. It's like, well, I want to play this one game that I can't make any work out of for like an hour, but also I have these three other games that I could possibly turn into money. Mm -hmm. You know, I could turn. I could turn Jedi not, or I could turn uh, the upcoming Star Wars game into Rent. You know, I remember that when I was freelancing for Paste and Playboy and stuff. Like, the real mentality that I pushed forward with was there are 20 games that are coming out in the next two months. Which of these can I turn into Rent? Um, and that served me pretty well financially, but ruined me emotionally and mentally as a human being. But every every freelancer knows this. Yeah, it's fine. I, it's, yeah. I, I, I would do a similar thing talking to uh, AJ Moser, another former game, former intern, who uh, he and I would basically tackle the vast majority of game reviews for Daily Dot. And just like, I would hit him up every month or so and be like, hey, what do you want? I'll take this, you take that. And be like, cool. Yeah, it, it, it was a very Spartan way of of determining what I was going to play that month as opposed to uh, like playing something I really, really actually wanted to, you know? Yeah, it's it's really weird, you know, because there's still that myth that persists, right? Where people are like, oh, you get to play video games for a living, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. How great is that? And it's like, no, dude, sometimes it can really suck. You know, e even at Game Informer, the majority of the time, GI staff don't play games. We write about games. Like 90% of the time, we don't have a controller in our hand. Uh, and 5% of the 10% of the time we do, it's it can be ruling because of deadlines and stuff. And that was even more true when I was a freelancer. Um, the worst review process I ever had, and it was a very important lesson that I took uh, along with me going forward, was I did a Bloodborne review for like 50 bucks, and I did it while I was sick, and the review took me 50 hours mm. to do, so I was making a dollar an hour, and from that point on, if it was like an RPG or something, and it wasn't at least like $200 for a review, I just didn't no, fucking yeah. do it. Fuck that. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, no, 
Um, so I don't. I think that people who look at game journalists and are like, "Oh, these people get to goof around all day and you know play games and blah blah blah. What a life!" Like they don't actually understand. Like there are lots. Like the vast majority of doing that job comes down to a balance mm-hmm. sheet. Like you're looking at a balance sheet trying to make the math work, and you're thinking about, well, what's interesting that I can say about this game? There's actually very little of playing the game or just playing games in general. Like it's mostly reporting on games, talking to games, thinking about mm-hmm. games. It's not fun. No, I mean, a large part of the job isn't fun in the way that they and think. And certainly from a, from a freelance perspective, yeah, it's definitely a lot of uh, searching for work to get work, you know, um, and a lot of uh, spending your day, spending half a day <laughs> writing invoices as I did yesterday. Invoices. invoices. Baby, they're the best. Tell you what, man, as we as we begin to wrap up, um, we talked a little bit about, you know, support networks and kind of growing as a PR professional and a lot of lessons learned from media. Just what do you you've been here a month and a half at Terra Bruna PR and seems to be going really well. Of course, it's a dream gig to start with the outer worlds. Uh, but what do you hope for the future? What do you want to happen in this line of work uh, for yourself? Uh, you know, I'm, I took this job, uh, one, because, you know, I got I got the email, the interview offer from Tara. And then I, you know, I wor- I'd worked with Tara, like on the Captain Amaze uh, or Captain Spirit thing. But I hadn't I didn't know that much about her. So I asked around and I had Andy Magnamira at the EIC and that Matt Burtz come back and we're like, oh, dude, Tara rules, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. And I wanted to work. I, I took the job because I wanted to educate myself about other aspects of the industry because there are some side projects that I'm working on, creative projects that, uh, you know, where that knowledge could be useful. And so it was mostly like an educational thing of like, okay, let's see what this is actually mm-hmm. like. Um, you know, what, what are my misconceptions? Where am I just dead wrong? Uh, you know, what valuable knowledge can I learn from this? Uh, and on that front, it's been great. Uh, working with Tara and the other folks have been great. It's great to actually work under people who know what they're doing. And that's not a stab at a Game Informer editorial. I'm talking about people, I'm talking about like at the highest level of, oh, these people have my livelihood in mm-hmm. their hands, but they know what they're, they're doing. It's enjoyable, like having that, you know, having being pretty confident in that sort of you know that level um as far as the future i'm not sure like i really enjoy this work and you know uh hopefully i will continue to enjoy it like i've loved it so far i loved working with Terra, and i've loved working with private division on outer worlds and stuff uh so we'll just see you know what it is going forward uh but right now i'm i'm enjoying it i think at the at the end of the day that is the most important thing is that you can show up to work and enjoy your time there and uh still get a little sense of that that marveling at hey i work in games in some context i think right yeah yeah like as much as like you know we've spent a fair amount of maybe it's mostly me but like riping about sort of like the pitfalls of this industry and the stuff that sucks about there's plenty to gripe about trust me (laughs) yeah the worker abuse how freelancers are abused in terms of like you know, the work, like the work that freelancers do and the compensation that they receive is stupid. It's it's heartrending because mm. um, most freelancers I know just they do like when I was freelancing and when uh, before and after, like they just do insane amounts of work. 
Um, you know, there are like three or four byline, yours included, bylines that I know whenever I see them, it's just like this person's doing an insane amount of work. Like Stephen Wright, Blake Hester, AJ, um, you know, all those folks with the their bylines appearing everywhere day after day. You know, I worry about them like, I worry about all of you guys burning yourself out for, you know, and not getting nearly as much compens compensation or uh, compensation as you deserve. Uh, so that's like, you know, there, there's plenty in this industry to be frustrated about. Um, but at the same time, like video games mm -hmm. rule, you know, I don't I think it'd be foolish to, to pretend that they don't. Right. Like there's a lot to gripe about. But games at the end of the day are still really cool. And the fact that we get to be a part of the industry making these things is is wild. I just wish it was a better industry sometimes. And I think everyone on all sides can work to make that better well, i think with people like you in it the industry is definitely a better place and uh, i am super glad to have called you uh, a friend all this time and uh, to have you on this show and you know we talk a little bit about the the themes of labor and capitalism and just it, it, a story like the outer worlds lands so much uh because so many of us do experience a lot of the themes that the, a game like that explores um I won't say that like I, I haven't played the vast majority of the game yet, so I'll reserve a you know full opinion. But I am liking what I see so far narratively. Uh, I just wonder why why is Outer Worlds uh, your game of the year, and does it have anything to do with some of those um, really kind of heavy hitting narrative themes? For sure, I, I think it'd be foolish for me to pretend that it doesn't. Um, a lot of the reason that I love Outer Worlds is I feel like I played Mass Effect 2 in 2010, and that's what got me back into video games after being away from them for a long time. And there's definitely been a part of me that's been chasing Mass Effect mm -hmm. 2 ever since. Like, you know, Red Dead Redemption 2 came out, and that's an amazing game. I think that's, a, I know, you know, a lot of people have totally fair thoughts about how long it is and blah, 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 blah. And that's totally fair, but that's about when that game came out and I played it and I was like, there was definitely a moment where I thought, is this the greatest game of all time that I've ever played? It's like, no mass effect two still is. So there's just something about the, the thing, like sort of the design of mass effect two of like hub worlds and, you know, having your crew and suicide mission and sci-fi stuff that outer worlds also takes bits and pieces of and combines them, you know, with the sense of humor from the original fallout games from Fallout uh, and Fallout mm -hmm. 2 uh, that folks on the Outer Worlds worked on, as well as sort of, you know, the the immersive sim aspects of Dishonored and Vampire Bloodlines were like, okay, well, how am I going to tackle this problem? Uh, my first playthrough of the Outer Worlds, I talked myself through 80% of that game, talked my way through 80% of that game by being like a persuasive sort of gunslinger. Like I could use violence when I wanted to, but most of the time it was just like, well, I'm going to lie, I'm going to charm, I'm going to intimidate, so on and so forth. Uh, and it made those moments where I did have to use violence or where I chose to use violence. Like there was one side quest where it would have been worse if I let the, the people that I came up against go walk out the mm -hmm. door. And it was just this like really shocking moment for me of like, all right, guns come out and we just killed an entire like bar of people. It felt like something in like a prestige TV show, like Fargo or something of like, oh man, like, and, and that's so rare to have that in games, I feel like, you know, because so much of, of games is just mowing down people and so on and so forth. But just to have that moment of like, holy shit, 
negotiations have failed, I have to actually like, yeah. you know, get my hands dirty or I'm making an active choice to do that. The fact that it's so rare that I can have a playthrough in the outer worlds and it's so rare that that comes up and it makes those moments hit hard. Like, I love that. Like, there's just so much about uh, how malleable your experience can be in the outer worlds. Cause I'm in a second playthrough now and I'm deliberately making different choices mm -hmm. And like how it affects the main quest and how it affects like how side quests can play out. Like just as someone who's designed like indie branching visual novels where there are choices within choices within choices, the fact that there are so many choices within choices in the outer worlds and they're fully like animated and, you know, there's voice lines for them and active, you know, stat or like active consequences in terms of like, you know, differing rewards and how storylines play out. Like, that's insane to me. So that's why I love The Outer Worlds, basically. I think... Is oh, that... No, go ahead. Okay. No, no, go ahead. Well, I, I, I was I gonna... Insist. I was only going to, like, interject that. I think the thing that so far really, really sticks out to me, aside from, yes, all the, the like, really great... Uh, reactive RPG storytelling, of course. Um, yeah, and I totally get the sense of, like, I'm playing a persuasive gunslinger, too. So, like, yeah, when I pull out my gun, I want it to matter. Uh, I want it, to, and I want there to be consequences, almost like, you know, Hitchcock says, you know, there's, there's a gun in the room. The rule is it has to go off eventually kind of thing. Uh, uh, but also, especially in that first world, um, minor spoilers for uh, people who perhaps haven't gone through that there's a there's like a lot of rpgs there's a moment where you have to make a decision of do i help this community or do i help this community and for a while there the writing in the game feels pretty straightforward as far as you know hey this place is pretty bad it sucks there's nothing really like gratifying or worth saving about it and here's this other community that like it's not super certain but like you can tell like they're they're good people they're on a good track like they they deserve some support and then when you finally like just before you get to the big decision time of like well who do i who do i rescue in this scenario uh, one of the companion characters parvati uh, played by ashley birch great character uh says hey you do realize that like no matter what you do you're going to be hurting a lot of people right and i can't take full credit for this uh kind of observation this is a lot of me ripping from patrick klepik but uh in that moment it stopped feeling like the traditional rpg of like i'm the lone savior who can save the world and i'm actually i'm being reminded that hey you're you didn't grow up here you didn't, you haven't lived here. You haven't met these people beyond a single conversation. And like, what right do you have to rip away uh, what has been built here and like what people really need to rely on? And like, yes, the system sucks, but like, who are you to make that decision for them? Shouldn't it be the people who live there? And uh, the, my, my storyline resolved in a way that I feel like kind of had some pretty good, like, positives and negatives uh but i think in that moment i was like okay here's a game that even though like every ad every screenshot is like really pushing the like late stage sci-fi capitalism angle uh it's interrogating it just a little more smartly than it like probably needed to which i super appreciate you could have still sold this game and just made it you know a, a call of duty level politics interrogation uh and it would have it would have still sold because it's a obsidian rpg very reminiscent of fallout new vegas but 
uh, here you are willing to make me stop and think before I press a button, you know, which I appreciate. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's those moments for me that really sell the characters too. Like I love the crew of misfits. I think Polygon had an article today. It was just like, I think the headline was, you know, uh, I must protect my, my crew, my trash yeah. crew in the <laughs> outer worlds or yeah. something. Um, and I really love them because it is those moments that do sell like Pravati and then like, you know, the other characters don't have to get into them, you know, obviously, but they do have similar moments of like, Hey, I am a person invested in this world. And it, it does this thing where they like try to educate you, uh, while revealing bits of their personality, you know, it's, 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 it's a fine balancing act, but it's moments like those that I think really make the outer world stand out to me says the guy doing yeah. the world PR. <laughs> I just want to put that disclaimer up there because, you know, it's that is a thing, right? right? It's right. That's kind of one of the frustrations of the job, too, is like, well, I, I really legitimately love this game, but then you're going to have folks who are like, well, he's just saying that because blah, 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 payroll, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it is a bit frustrating because this is genuinely the best game that I've played this year in terms of, like, what I want from games. This is hitting, like, all the... All the, all the good spot, all the spots for me, uh, but stuff like that, those moments that really sell. You it. know, I, I understand that. Uh, I think you have at least a couple years worth of experience on me, but I think I've, I've also been around in this industry long enough to recognize when a PR person like doesn't really have their heart behind the product they're hawking. And I've never doubted for a second that like, yeah, Outer Worlds is a JV ass game. Uh, it, it is the most JV if it, ass game. If you game. put it, if you and would like put two yeah, years. if you would put Wolfenstein somewhere in there, it could only it would we would break the universe. Oh, uh, so. no, if, B, if BJ was like just an NPC or something, yeah, that's great. JV, uh, man, thank you so much for coming on the 1099. I uh, very much appreciate you kind of lending your expertise and just this new window of your life. Uh, I. Uh, I don't think it's uh, even remotely a lie to say I, I look up to you and all the crew of Game Informer, and I'm very glad that uh, most, if not all, of you are landing on your feet in a really great way. And, yeah, man, any uh, any closing thoughts before we head on out here? Uh, no, just thanks for, for inviting me on. Uh, listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, I was on the 1099, like, three or four yeah, years ago yeah. right we, after we, we had the dig for that episode <laughs> yeah uh and we and i and i tuned in you know every now and again and it's been great to see how the podcast has evolved uh you know when josiah was running it and now when you're running it and the guests that you've had on it's great it's been great to to see this uh, evolve and i'm so glad that you guys have an audience to like listen to it and to have been part of that journey too um so yeah uh thanks for inviting me on again yeah man I no yeah it. no worries and folks, every Monday you can find a new episode of the 1099 here on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcast. Uh, it's probably going to be a very Game Informer heavy couple of, couple of weeks here. So uh, angling for Mr. Ben Hansen and uh, Elise, as we discussed earlier, is uh, definitely interested. And yeah, I'm super excited to just kind of talk about the new stages of these writers' lives and uh, or these games media folks' lives and uh, that's what we're here for at 1099, to kind of talk shop with some of our good friends. So check us out next week, and hope you guys have a good one. Play Outer Worlds. It's good.